Welcome everyone to season two of the How in the Health podcast, and I couldn't ask for a better guest than who we have today for our very first episode in season two, and that is Vanessa Style. Her story is remarkable. She is a cancer survivor. She's a board-certified patient advocate, and she's been the sole caregiver for her 93-year-old grandmother for the past decade plus. So an incredible woman, an incredible story. You're going to want to hear everything that she's been through and the wisdom that she brings to helping patients navigate the healthcare system now that she's a patient advocate. This was all recorded in Zoom, so the video and audio quality is what it is, but uh, I hope you enjoy. Vanessa, you are officially guest number one on season two of the How in the Health podcast. So thanks so thank you so much for taking a few minutes to spend here and share your story with everybody listening. Thank you, Eric, and thank you for having me. I'm excited to be the first guest on the second season, so that's great. No, this is fantastic. And it's already, before we even get into this, it's already a look for me on how you just never know where connections are going to come back around, right? So four years ago, I read the book, The Last Lecture by Randy Pausch. And in that, the acknowledgments go to the Lustgarten Foundation, where you worked at the time. We connected on LinkedIn. I came across your story on your blog, Living in Style. And four years later, we're doing a podcast episode. So Again, it's super crazy how it all kind of comes full circle. I know that's the power of connections, right? Yeah, it's fantastic. And and as I mentioned in the introduction, you have had some incredible experiences and remarkable stories. And I want our listeners to really get the full context here. And so let's start with the cancer story. So you're a nine-year survivor of cancer. And I want you to take us through kind of what was going on before the diagnosis? What was your mindset? What were your goals and aspirations? And then you get the news and how does that change your life? Right. Well, as you can imagine, it changed everything, not just in that moment, but it changed what I did with my life, both personally and professionally, how I lived my life, how I viewed the world, viewed connections. So it really was a catalyst for a lot of changes at that time. Um, So for those who are not familiar with my story, I was diagnosed in 2013 with thyroid cancer. I was 26 at the time. And I was really focused on growing my career and finding my niche after graduating from the American University in Washington, D.C. some years earlier with a political science degree. I had been intent on going to law school, so I was kind of taking some time. I was working for a law school and fundraising, figuring out if that was the right you know, next step for me. And I had gone to a new gynecologist for what I thought was going to be just a routine annual exam. And upon visiting, he asked if he could check my neck for a neck uh, a neck check. And I was kind of surprised by that. I had seen a head and, and uh, an ENT at the time for about 10, 15 years, and I had never had a neck check performed. And the first thing he asked was if anyone had ever told me that I had a nodule on the right side of my thyroid. So it completely caught me off guard. Of course, I wasn't expecting to have a neck check, let alone have something be found. And I had no symptoms. I was healthy. So there wasn't even anything that I was concerned about. Um, and from there, I went for thyroid ultrasound and I went for blood work, which revealed I had subclinical hypothyroidism, meaning that at some point I would need to be on some synthetic thyroid hormone replacement medication and my thyroid wasn't functioning properly. And the ultrasound revealed I had a nodule that was greater than one centimeter. So I went for a fine needle aspiration biopsy and it kind of just, you know, snowballed from there. It was like one step at a time, but each step led to another step and another step. And eventually I found my way to an endocrinologist who gave me the news that it was papillary thyroid carcinoma, which is the most common form of thyroid cancer, uh, accounts for around 90% of cases and usually very treatable. So that was, you know, the good news, but then it also came 
how do I find a head and neck surgeon and how do I process the diagnosis? Um, so it was, it was a lot that felt like it happened in a short period of time, but it felt in my mind, like as though it were taking forever. Yeah, that's crazy. So when we talk about, I mean, everybody, I think knows somebody who's been diagnosed with cancer. And recently I had kind of a sore throat that lasted about a month and immediately my mind just went to like worst case scenario. Right. And so yeah. I finally went in and got my annual physical. I was like, Hey, this is happening, but I've avoided it. I think it's been 12 years since I've gone in for an annual physical, which is <laughs> my bad. Right. Right. Because I almost like don't want the bad news. So take me through that mentality of you go in there and then you get news and is it immediately despair or is it immediately fear or how, what, what was going on in your mind? You know, it was strange. Like I was never somebody who was afraid to go to a doctor. I, you know, something felt off. Okay. You go to the doctor after that diagnosis. I now, I call it, you know, scansiety in terms of like having to go for annual blood work and ultrasounds and things like that. But also now I feel a little bit of that anxiety when I have to go to a doctor. Cause now I'm like, what if something else is found? What if there was something going on? I think, you know, back in that moment in 2013, initially it wasn't fear right off the bat, you know, thyroid nodules are fairly common. Most times they're benign. So you would just have a routine ultrasound once a year. At that time, I think my grandmother had recently been diagnosed with a nodule and they just watched it to make sure it didn't grow. So for the first probably 48 hours, I was okay. And I was waiting for the next step. And then it, I think it set in, I was like, wow, it, it could actually be something. And um, I did what, you know, you're usually advised not to do as a patient, which is consult Dr. Google. Uh, so that was, yeah, I kind of went down the rabbit hole there. And I think that's when I started to get a little bit more fearful of, wow, I could be facing a cancer diagnosis in my twenties. And I was certainly not expecting that when I was thinking about my, my life plan and my career choices. Yeah. That's funny. You mentioned Dr. Google, right. And I think especially now with the age of kind of information around healthcare in general, you can really go all over the place when it comes to if you start doing your own personal research and Googling symptoms and stuff like that. So I'm sure that maybe heightened your awareness or, or anxiety around it too. But yeah, it's kind of a crazy, crazy story there. So let me ask you this, when you had the treatment, right? Explain what that was. What do they do when they go in and is it removing that nodule on your thyroid or removing the cancer? What is that experience so like? I had a procedure which is called a total thyroidectomy, which means they actually remove the entire thyroid. And in my case, they did a central neck dissection. So they removed any surrounding lymph nodes that looked like they could be problematic. Um, that was something that I shared in the book, Tough Women Who Survived Cancer, which I was featured in in 2019, you know, that foresight by my surgeon to remove those nodule, those other uh, lymph nodes prevented me from having a second surgery, because even though they looked clean when he was performing the surgery, one of them tested positive for cancer. So it showed signs that there was spread outside of the thyroid. Um, so the total thyroidectomy is usually the procedure that's performed. And then if there is spread, they do something called radioactive iodine, which is an I-131 pill, which would kill any remaining thyroid tissue that's in the body. Wow. So that thyroidectomy, is that something where it's going to leave kind of a mark there for a little while? Like, as you're walking around, do you have to wear something covering your neck? Like, what was that all about? Yeah, I actually, even nine years later, I have a, a slight scar. I have to say my surgeon did an excellent job closing, uh, you know, closing the incision. So I did have steri strips on for a few weeks. So they're kind of like translucent little band-aids that just keep the area clean. You want to be careful about sun exposure. And some people find using a scar cream uh, that can be helpful to prevent how dark the scar is moving forward. Awesome. 
So let's talk about that shift in life plan now. So you had all those goals and aspirations and from everything that I could see, you, you documented the process really well. So was that kind of the kickoff point for your blog is to kind of document your story, what you were going through. And then that's kind of evolved over time as well. Yeah, pretty much. That was, that was kind of how it happened. So I was diagnosed in 2013 and I didn't start living in style until 2014. And it was sort of in thinking of like, well, what's next? How do I use my story to help other people? How do I share the resources that help me? How do I act as a resource for other young cancer patients? And one thing I found when I was initially diagnosed, I was reading all these horror stories and it was something that really paralyzed me. Like there were times where I, I kept thinking like, I can't go for surgery. Like I, you know, my life is never going to be the same. So I really felt crippled at times, like while going through this diagnosis and I wanted to help other people. I wanted to sort of share my story and have it be a way to say, yes, I went through this. This is what helped me. These are things that maybe could help you, but like there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And for me with the blog, the most cathartic thing had always been like when people would reach out and ask, uh, ask how I got through it or tell me that my story resonated with them and inspired them. And that was something that I knew I was kind of like on a path with. I really felt passionate about that. And that was how I got into patient advocacy personally. Yeah. I think that's a great segue into this because you kind of bring that empathy and you bring that experience of going through what a lot of these people will go through or have gone through. So how, what is a patient advocate? Help me understand and help us understand exactly what a patient advocate does and how they help. I like to say that we're all patient advocates. We just don't know it yet. Mm -hmm. I, in my case, I was sort of thrust into it. I was somebody who was always interested in health and wellness and science and how things worked. So for me, my patient advocacy started by diving in and, and reading every resource I could about uh, thyroid cancer, thyroidectomies, and sort of what I was facing. I know for other people, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around it and know what to ask, you know, what to ask your doctor and how to proceed with doctor's appointments. So patient advocates have all different roles and job functions. Some of them will work privately one-on-one -on -one with patients. They'll do everything from navigate health insurance helping the patient um, ask questions to their doctor, you know, decipher treatment plans for them. My patient advocacy looks a little bit different. Mine is really, you know, using social media, using digital health and trying to help patients be their own advocates, you know, trying to demystify the process so that people don't feel that they can't ask questions when they go to their doctor or that they don't know what to ask, or they're not smart enough to ask questions. We really are our own best advocates. We know our bodies better than anybody else. We might not know the physiology behind things. We're not MDs, but we know when something's not right. And I think it's really important and really impactful as a patient to kind of go into a doctor and a, an appointment with that knowledge. So that's what I've tried to do across my social media platforms, blogging, the media interviews that I, I do. And, you know, I've also, as, as an advocate, I have been a caretaker for my grandmother, which I'm sure we will get into that story. Yeah. So um, I won't go too far now, but I think kind of having that reference point as her caretaker and then having my own cancer diagnosis really strengthened my background as an advocate. And it came full circle. Like I know how to advocate for other people, but I also know how important it is to advocate for myself. Yeah, that's amazing. And within patient advocacy, right. And, and when it's an actual opportunity for you to have an employment out of it as well, are there certain areas of specialty? Like, is it somebody who's okay, I'm a cancer patient advocate and even further a thyroid cancer patient advocate versus dementia or any other disease state? Yeah, there are certainly patient advocates that, you know, work more in um, a gerontological setting. So they work with dementia and Alzheimer's and they help families sort of navigate that diagnosis 
There are advocates that work with cancer patients. There are advocates that work in the autoimmune space um, and work to navigate autoimmune diseases and disorders. So really patient advocacy is such a broad field, which makes it, I think, really exciting. You know, it gives you a way to use your own experience or your own background to be able to make a great impact for patients. And I think it's such a growing field as well. We have an aging population that's going to need, you know, more and more care. And as we know, the medical system is not always the easiest to work with. So um, it's important to have somebody, you know, if, if you're not able to advocate for yourself, if, you know, you're part of an older population that's not comfortable with it or needs help, you know, it's important to have an advocate. And that could just, that could be a family member. That could be a friend. It, you know, it just has to be a trusted resource that can help you get the care that you need when you need it. Yeah, I kind of think of it like in high intense situations to have that outside source is kind of the third party view and kind of see the big picture and take a calmer, more methodical approach is a, is a huge deal and a huge benefit there. And I think you've even mentioned it when you first diagnosed, okay, scheduling an appointment for the surgery and what comes next and what comes next is it's a big deal. And, and there's a lot of stress around that. And we're kind of in the Medicare world, right? And so we help a lot of our clients who come from a wide variety of backgrounds. And some of them are absolute geniuses, right? In their field, they're attorneys, they're doctors, they're specialized in very specific areas, but then you bring them into the healthcare space. And it's like, what is going on here? Like, where am I supposed to go? It's so true. And, you know, I always say now you don't know what you don't know until you need to know it. And, you know, you can be well-versed in so many different things, but it gets very complicated. And especially when it's your own health that you're responsible for. You know, you have a different perspective when you're caring for yourself as opposed to caring for somebody else. So I think that's just something to be mindful of too. Yeah. And so kind of with this whole story, with your experience, who were some people that stepped up in your life that you didn't necessarily expect them to step up and help out? When I was first diagnosed, I actually had a friend from my office and she took time off and came with me to my appointments in New York City. So I'm on Long Island. I'm about an hour outside of the city. And she was taking time to come with me. We would go into the city. We'd see my head and neck surgeon. We'd find our way to Shake Shack. But <laughs> um, it was really sort of having that support, having friends that rallied around me and, and tried to figure out what they can do and, and how they could how they could help. You know, it was hard. I In the beginning, I was very reluctant to say like, I have thyroid cancer. It felt like it was too personal. Like if somebody asked, I would just say it's thyroid cancer. So I think too, for people who want to help, um, you also have to kind of understand it's hard sometimes for patients to really wrap their heads around their diagnosis or to be able to verbalize what they need or how they're feeling. Uh, I was fortunate to really have those friends that kind of took it upon themselves to step up to the plate and find ways, even though I didn't ask or I didn't verbalize what I needed, you know, find ways to really help me and find ways to be included in, in what I was going through. And that, you know, it was, it was a great bonding moment for a lot of friendships, but it, I really felt supported with that. And that's something, you know, I, I hope all patients can have because it does make the process a lot easier. That brings up two questions to my mind and they're kind of related. One is, as you mentioned, if you do have a friend or a family member that has had a diagnosis like this, I think the knee-jerk reaction is always, oh, well, I'm here if you need anything, right? And then it's mm -hmm. kind of uh, on both sides. One, the, the patient or the person who's just had this diagnosis doesn't really know how to ask for help. And then on the other side, I'm, I want to help. I just don't know how. So what advice would you give to those who want to help and don't quite know how past the words of we're here if you need anything and we love you? I think sometimes it's as simple as making food for somebody. 
I, I have a coworker now and she's amazing and literally makes soup for my grandmother. And my grandmother loves it. And I love it because, you know, it's, it's one less thing. It takes something off of me as the caregiver. So I think even in terms of a, a cancer diagnosis, if they have a pet offering to take the dog for a walk, you know, doing grocery shopping from them, even if it's ordering, you know, and having the groceries delivered, but anything that just helps them go through their day and makes it a little bit easier is such a huge lift for somebody going through a diagnosis. For me, you know, not having to think about, who was going to come to the appointment with me, knowing I had a built-in, you know, buddy system and a friend who was going to be there with me that just, it took such anxiety away from the whole process. I wasn't, you know, dreading going in because we tried to make, you know, we tried to make a day of it and we had fun and we did something to kind of take my mind off of it. So I think it's, even if it's the, the littlest thing that can make such a huge impact for somebody who's a cancer patient or a caregiver. What, on the flip side, what advice would you give to somebody who is going through this diagnosis? They are now the patient and they're the ones experiencing this. What advice would you give to them on being able to open up and accept help? Yeah, that's hard. I mean, nobody wants to feel like they're a burden or that they're, you know, they're causing somebody else, uh, you know, they're taking them out of their way. I think as a patient, you have to know like your, your friends, your family, they want to be there for you and they might not know what to say at the right times or say what you need to hear, but in their own way, you know, they're there. So I feel like you have to let people, you know, meet them where they are. And if they offer help, accept it, yeah. you know, at some point you're going to look back and you're going to be really grateful that you did. And it's going to make such a difference for you. But I, I know that's like a hard thing for a lot of patients, myself included. It's like, oh, I, you know, I feel bad. You have to take a day off work, but they want to be there. You know, your friends and your family, they want to support you. And in their own way, like that's how they're able to do it. And it's a bonding moment in a way. I really think it's important for the relationship as well. So again, I know it can be a struggle, but it's definitely, um, it's really worthwhile to have those people and make them feel included. And, and then you have a support system. Yeah. And I think in the person that's giving the services, you now experience through your patient advocacy is I think there is a sense of, I don't know if it's pride or just fulfillment in helping mm -hmm. people. Right. So they're getting something out of it as well of that fulfillment side of things. And so it's not necessarily a burden on somebody um, if they're willing and able to help. So, right. so that's fantastic. So, so, so you're still a young woman and you are the caregiver for your grandmother and have been for a long time. Take me through that story. How did that come about? And, and what does that relationship look like over the past decade plus? Yeah, I've been a caregiver for more than 10 years for my grandmother. I started caregiving for her when I moved back to Long Island from Washington, D.C. after I graduated from college. At that point, she was in her uh, mid 80s. And about a year or two after I, I started caregiving with her, um, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. So she was a breast cancer survivor at the age of 69. And she was wow. diagnosed with a second form of breast cancer at around 85. So I kind of had that whole experience, you know, caring for her, uh, in addition to being a, a cancer survivor myself, but I call it caregiving 2.0 now. So she's now 93 years old. And the past few months, we've really made the difficult decision and had to transition her into a long-term care facility. So it's a whole different form of caregiving. You know, in the early days, it was going to doctor's appointments with her, helping with groceries, you know, making sure that she was okay and, and providing visits and emotional support. And now it's caring, you know, doing everything, uh, managing her condo, putting it up for sale, managing her finances, checking on her every night and doing dinner with her, 
trying to manage, you know, Medicaid and health insurance and all of those, all of those things that most people in their thirties don't think about because they feel they have all the time in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my grandmother's case, it was a very, uh, sort of a very night and day progression. You know, we went from one day in September to saying, well, maybe we should get an aide to come in and help you meal prep and help you with eating to, we were in an emergency room in October and really, you know, we've, uh, you know, we've sort of been in facilities ever since. So it's definitely been quite a journey these past few months with how the, the care has progressed. Yeah. What, what are kind of the major challenges just in general, right? Cause, cause you've got a big spectrum there of when she's a little bit more capable and able of doing things at the beginning. And now she's progressing and aging. What are the challenges that caregivers will face as they're going into that with another family member? I feel like, and I know I said it earlier too, you don't know what you don't know until you need to know it. You know, I thought we were in good shape. Like I thought we were prepared. We had seen the elder care attorney. We had the the will, the living will, the healthcare proxy, the power of attorney, everything was set. Or so I thought (laughs) we never really discussed like long-term care. What would happen if, you know, you got to a point where you couldn't take care of yourself. And I think, you know, naively, we both just figured we would never come to that point, or at least maybe, you know, my grandmother thought that she wouldn't come to that point. So for me at 35, it's been an eye-opening experience. Um, I mean, back as far as September, I, I didn't know like subacute rehab, long-term care facility, everything that goes into Medicaid. Like I didn't really know about all of this stuff. And, you know, in some way on the patient advocacy side, it's been really scary. You know, the, yeah. the gap in knowledge and the resources, yes, they're out there, but they don't make it easy for you to find it, to navigate it. I tell friends, I'm like, if my morning doesn't start with an elder care attorney, a hospice nurse, or a real estate attorney, like my day can't begin. So there are a lot of things to know as you get into sort of that long-term care and end of life planning. And I, I don't think many people are aware of it until much later in life. So part of you know why I want to share this story too about caregiving is just, there are so many things to know. And I think the sooner you can have those conversations, the earlier you can have those conversations, the better. I mean, I really, I was faced with all of this in September and it was overwhelming, not just managing my grandmother's care, making sure she was okay. But, you know, we went from emergency room to subacute rehab back to the emergency room. There was just, it was so logistically difficult. And I think for people who don't have a huge family network, it's really hard to have everything on one person. You know, it's hard to be the person where you're managing care, you're managing finances, you're managing real estate, you're dealing with attorneys, plus working full-time and managing your own mental, physical, and emotional well-being. So there's just a a lot that goes into sort of the long-term care planning phase. Yeah, that long-term care, it's something that we talk about our clients a lot because, uh, yeah, it's one, it's not covered by Medicare, long-term care specifically. And so financially, it becomes a pretty big conversation that can kind of wipe out wealth once you start going into facilities and stuff like that. It's crazy. And then, as you mentioned, if, if it's a relationship that you have with a family member, right, in this case, it's grandmother, granddaughter, it can be a spouse relationship, it can be a child parent relationship. And a lot of times as they progress through that long-term care spectrum, right, the child-parent relationship isn't a child-parent relationship anymore, right? They're doing so much more and seeing their parent or their grandparent in situations that are different. And so now when they go into that long-term care facility, it's almost like hired out. So there's a lot of stuff, as you mentioned, that 
you're juggling as you're going through all of these decisions to make and how much can we do ourselves? How much do we need to kind of outsource? So props to you on that. I mean, that's, that's, that's a big, a big challenge to take on. What are the rewards you have seen from that? Right. So we talked about the challenges. What rewards have you seen in your relationship with your grandmother as you've had that kind of special connection over this amount of time? Yeah. I mean, we've really had um, a special connection probably since my birth. Um, so for me, it's been really difficult kind of losing that, you know, losing those moments as she's slipped more with the dementia. So getting to that point where, you know, we don't really have those conversations anymore. I think the, the beautiful part is that I'm still there. I'm still able to be a part of her life. Um, now that she's in long-term care, especially with COVID, it's been, it's been very scary with the yeah. restrictions and whether they would have to close down. So I'm thankful that I've been able to enter the facility safely. Um, but I do recognize like I'm part of that invisible workforce. Like even though she's in a long-term care facility and there is round the clock care, there's still a need for the caregiver. I'm in touch regularly with the doctors giving her meds. I help with nightly dinners for her. Um, I make sure she's ready for bed. So there's still, uh, there's still a role to play in those types of facilities for caregivers. But I, I've always felt that it's an honor and it's a privilege to be able to care for her. Yeah, I've always viewed it as probably one of the, the greatest things that I'll, I'll ever do in my life because she has given so much to me as a grandparent. So I'm really honored that I'm able to sort of be here for her and also create a sense of routine while she's in a facility. I know it was, you know, it's hard, especially at that age and with dementia to be moved around so much. And now you're not in an environment that you're familiar with. Yeah. So for me, it's just been very rewarding to be able to kind of help transition with that journey. Yeah. Can I ask how you became the caregiver? Like of everybody in her family or whatever else, how did it fall on you? Well, I'm an only child and I'm actually the only one on the family that's on Long Island. Okay. So my father is in Germany and my mother is out of state. So it's, you know, it's a lot um, on me and it kind of just happened naturally. Like when I came back from college, cause I would go out and visit grandma and you know, then as she got older and it became harder for her to do tasks, go to the doctor alone, drive, you know, it sort of just morphed into, okay, well, I'm here, you know, I'll, I'll take care of it and I'll, I'll do it. But like I said, caregiving 2.0 is a very different, uh, a very different side of caregiving because now it's not just the patient side. It's also the logistical side with the finances and health insurance and real estate and everything that goes with it. Yeah, that's, that's so much to deal with. So take me through so patient advocacy now and the way that it's morphed for you in, in addition to your blog, right? Living in style. So you go through the patient advocacy side of things. It also looks like you do a lot in kind of the health and wellness space and fitness, and then you've got food and you've got style. So how has that evolved over time into being kind of, it's a, it's, I don't know how to, it's, it's not just one specific thing, right? It's not a cancer diagnosis. Now it's kind of the whole well-being of somebody and yourself and documenting that process. Yeah. You know, living in style initially, when I started, it was very much a lifestyle and wellness site. I wanted it to resonate with other young millennials who were sort of in that phase of trying to figure out their career and their next steps. But I also wanted to have a place to share my journey. So I tried to make it appeal to a broader audience, not just people who had been affected by cancer. You know, now so much of my life is cancer and caregiving that I feel like I've kind of honed in on that audience a little bit more. I'm actually in the process of launching a really exciting Instagram community 
um, that touches again on everything from cancer to caregiving. It's called the hospital bar. So it's going to be a lot of Instagram lives where we have open and honest conversations about um, everything from medical pet peeves to caregiving 101. So I'm really excited to sort of you know, move into this next phase with blogging and social media and be able to, you know, create this community where we can all come together and support each other and offer tips and resources so that we're all more informed. Uh, that's amazing. Is that, are you doing this all yourself? Do you have a team that's helping you out? Like, take me through that. Who's, that's a lot to do. I mean, just as a content creator, there's a lot that goes into it that people just don't see, right? Uh, yeah. Um, for the most part, it's been all on me and it, it is a heavy lift. You know, you know, as a content creator, it's, it's hard to always feel inspired. And I think, you know, for me, the pandemic really changed a lot of it. Of course, I wasn't going to fitness classes. I wasn't staying at hotels in Montauk. Like I wasn't, you know, doing so much of my normal life that I would share on, on the blog. Um, for the hospital bar, I have an amazing co-host and we've been able to bounce ideas off each other. So I'm excited. It's going to be launching in March of 2022. Thanks. And, um, yeah, I'm noticing having, having a, a partner in it is much easier than going it alone. Yeah. Yeah. Again, just there's so much to deal with. Again, as we make just a podcast, the audio, the visual, and then actually putting it out onto a social platform and then putting it into blog. I mean, that's a good job. I mean, that's awesome. <laughs> that's, that's so much. What else do people need to know around patient advocacy and, and how, if somebody wants to get involved in patient advocacy, again, I know we're all patient advocates, but specifically more detailed into that, what steps do they take? Where, what routes can they take to be a more involved patient advocate? Yeah, I think start with yourself. I think that's really the first place, you know, start asking questions and finding a care team that supports that knowledge. You know, I've been fortunate to have doctors where they welcome that open and honest discussion. I mean, I have an endocrinologist now, like I find the latest thyroid news and we actually discuss it in my appointments. So I think um, as a patient advocate, sort of understanding your body, you know, knowing, knowing what's feeling good, what's not, and how to sort of frame that narrative for doctors and for your appointments is really important. Um, it'll also just give you a good foundation to help other people. Like I said, you know, before I was diagnosed, I knew nothing about thyroid cancer, not even sure if I knew where the thyroid was in my body, but through my own diagnosis, I was really able to educate other people about, you know, Hey, you should learn how to perform a neck check. You know, you should make sure that your primary care doctor is running annual thyroid labs when you go for your, you know, your blood work. So I think everything that you do with your appointments, you know, you're able to help other people who just might not know. And it's the same thing for patient advocacy on the caregiving side. I've learned a lot from people who were caregivers for their parents, for other family members, you know, they've been able to guide me. So it's, I want to pay it forward in my own way and be able to help other people who kind of come up behind me and need that, need that help and need that support. That's awesome. Again, I think your story is so fascinating because again, you had something that was life-changing, right? Life-altering circumstance that happens. And I think we all go through this in certain instances of our mindset of poor me, right? Like, oh, poor me. Why is this happening to me? And then that can either have somebody shut down or that can be the spark like it is in your case mm-hmm. to go and start something new. So so I think that's that's awesome. how did you deal with those days or those moments of, I don't know if despair is the right word or or that poor me mindset? I certainly had a lot of those days. I really had days where the diagnosis was difficult to endure. I had days where I thought the diagnosis was wrong. Um, I tried to use all of it as, as fuel sort of as, you know, a, a fire to like, 
get going, just even past the diagnosis, like not even thinking what I was going to do with it, but just like I did my research, I did my diligence on everything and kind of using everything that I felt, the good emotions, the bad emotions, just to sort of power through it and get to the other side. And then once I did, I realized I was probably not alone in those feelings. Like I said, reading a lot of the, the message boards and the support community boards was a bit scary, you know, seeing how some people didn't do well after surgery, didn't feel well, never felt like they got their life back. And I was really traumatized by that. And I was like, I want to share the good story. I want to share that, you know, sometimes it's, it's mindset and attitude and and that can really uh, be so powerful in a diagnosis. So for me, it's, you know, I definitely had those days, but I sort of didn't let them deter me. Like I let them be my source of of courage and, and fuel and fire for moving forward and kind of getting past the diagnosis. Yeah. And as you've gone through this, as you've gone through your experience in helping others, what are some areas of healthcare that you see real opportunities for us to improve? I think the patient experience, you know, I think really making people, making patients feel like part of the healthcare system. So it's not, you know, doctors and patients, like we're all there for the common good. We're all there for the same purpose. So I think making patients feel that they have a voice in healthcare is so incredibly valuable. You know, I've worked with a lot of like digital health startups and that's really been their focus. And I think that's an amazing thing that's going to empower so many patients to be part of the solution for their own health, but also for the greater population. Yeah, that's something that I feel like it could just be my impression, but it seems like nowadays people are want to be so much more involved in decisions, right? Before it was go to a doctor or go to a professional and just agree with everything they say and just go with it. Now, especially in our world, like Medicare and stuff, they're coming with us and they've done all this research, right? They know so much more and they want to be so much more involved in that decision rather than just you tell me what to do and 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 I'm a good with that, right? So, and I don't know if that's an information side of things where we just have so much more access or we're more skeptical or whatever else it is, but yeah, being yeah. more involved. I, I think it's a combination of everything. It's easier it's easier to access information. Um, but I still think there's a missing link in piecing it all together. Mm-hmm. Like I said, on the caregiving side with my grandmother, like there were so many things that I didn't know. And it was like, well, call this person or talk to this person or go like everything felt so disjointed. Yeah. And then when you're in that phase of, of life and the caregiving side, like you're in a really vulnerable position. Like you really do need somebody to help guide you and navigate you. And like, these are your next steps. I don't know if I've done everything right. I probably haven't. I've done it to the best of my abilities. And as I can do it as, you know, as much as I can do as one person. But I think that's where a patient advocate can be really helpful um, for families that are navigating the caregiving side, because there's just so many things to tackle kind of all at once. Yeah. I think you nailed it right there. There's that that fear of, did I do everything right? Right. Did I mess up somewhere? And then if if it's just you making those decisions, I think that that's compounded, but you have somebody there with you going through it to kind of double check and make sure everything's right. Just the, the knowledge that there's that second check, I guess would be beneficial and, and valuable. Yeah, that's definitely helpful. I mean, I'm certain I didn't do everything correctly. Um, (laughs) I can say that I did it to the best of my abilities. Yeah. But yeah, having somebody else to cross-reference would have been amazing. That's awesome. Well, again, Mike, your story is remarkable. And so for anybody listening to this, go check out the blog, Living in Style. 
And, and then when you release your new, it was, it's the hospital bar, the hospital bar. So okay. on Instagram, we're the hospital bar RX. So the hospital bar underscore RX. Right. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's going to be a community for everybody. We want to hear people's stories. We want to be able to share resources and it's going to be a great community where, you know, we have a little bit of fun kind of coming together and, and bonding over what we've been through and wanting to help other people. That's awesome. What what questions haven't I asked that I should have? Is those who are looking into both your story, patient advocacy, caregiving, what what else do people need to know? I think, you know, it's so hard going into any of these experiences. You know, on on the cancer patient side, of course, you feel overwhelmed because it's your own health that you're responsible for. And on the caregiving side, you're responsible for somebody else's health. To be quite honest, I'm not sure which is more frightening sometimes because I've definitely, you know, been in both positions and I'm like, I am not sure I'm capable of making these types of decisions. Like who's trusting me on this? Like who thinks this is a good idea? Um, So I think you really have to know when to ask help, like when you need to elicit outside help. And that's something I wish, you know, on my, with my grandmother, everything just happened so quickly. Like there wasn't really time for that, but of course I wish I would have been, I guess, more proactive, which I would have been in my twenties thinking about this. But I think if there's one thing I could share with people, it's really have those conversations, you know, especially for caregivers, it's end of life conversations are so difficult, but they're really important. Like it will help you in the long run to know that everything's taken care of, or if if things aren't taken care of, what are someone's wishes? You know, how can you really uphold your fiduciary responsibilities on the caregiving side? Because otherwise, like you're going to be on your own having to navigate it. So I think that's something I really have spent a lot of time stressing. Um, Nobody wants to have those conversations, but when you're in the situation, it's kind of too late at that point. So I feel like the earlier you can do it, the better. And again, you know, make sure that you have those outside resources that, you know, you have consulted the elder care attorney, you have an estate planner, like you have everything controlled and you have people that you can count on and resources you can go to for then when you're in those situations, you don't have to be scrambling to get everything together. Yeah, because all of those are so complex. It sounds like you need a team, right? So you do have your estate planning attorney, you have mm-hmm. your long term care specialist, you have your caregiver, you have these, what other what other entities am I missing? Or what other members of that dream team should you put together? Yeah, I mean, for us, we, um, you know, we really didn't know much about Medicaid. We, you know, we had done sort of the, uh, the estate planning attorney side of things, but we never consulted an elder care attorney. So that was like a whole nother eye-opening experience. Um, so I, I think also like having, you know, having a financial planner, like having somebody involved in the process to figure out, you know, obviously with Medicaid, you have to do these spend downs. They have the five-year look back. So making sure that you're sort of like where you need to be at an appropriate amount of time. Like obviously in your nineties, it's a little bit too late to start, you know, working on that process. Um, But I think having a a plan in place for long-term care, how to pay for that care, who's going to manage that care, all of those things are things that, you know, again, you start thinking of sooner rather than later. And I was actually shocked when my grandmother went into long-term care. I, I sat with their business office there and these two women who work there, none of them, neither of them had their affairs in order. <laughs> like it was, it was sort of, cause I was like, well, I feel so bad. Like, I didn't know about all this. Like, I didn't know we had to do this. And they're like, don't worry about it. Like we work here. Like we work in a facility like wow. this. 
and we don't even have our affairs where they should be. And I was like, well, that makes me feel a whole lot better about my situation. Maybe not about yours, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that's the thing, you know, everybody feels like they have an infinite amount of time to have those conversations and I'll, we'll, we'll work on that next year. We'll tackle that in five years. And, you know, honestly, just get it off your plate. Like just know that you have it together. Yeah. That's what's crazy. The long term care world specifically. So if somebody makes it to 65 years old, they have a 71% chance of needing long-term care in some form, which, so everyone's like, oh, it's not going to happen to me, right? Well, 71% kind of states otherwise. And at least from a long-term care policy, as we talk through those things, like the ideal age, just so everybody is aware is between 50 and 60, because you're, you're old enough to have the wealth and the assets to be able to afford it but you're young enough to where the medical underwriting makes sense and, and hopefully there aren't any severe problems there. So yeah, as you mentioned, 93, that's a tough, that's a tough situation yeah. to be in to start having that conversation. Right. And, and again, you just don't know, you yeah. know, even though the, the target age is 50 to 60, you could be 45 and something yeah. could happen, but still, you know, it's, it's just, um, yeah, you know, knowledge is power and, kind of having some framework to it. So I think, you know, sharing that 50 to 60, everybody get your, get your things together. Is <laughs> the, start talking uh, about long-term care. <laughs> yeah. It is a real, well now I, you know, I'm 35 and now I'm already like, I'm going to start looking into long-term care insurance. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's important, right. And the insurance world is one of the least exciting areas of the world, right. In terms of just I don't know. It's not the sexiest topic to talk about, but it is so important. It is so important as, as you well know, um, because yeah, it's not going to happen to me. It turns out things happen to people and it's nice to have when you need it for sure. Absolutely. No, I mean, like I said, this has been an incredibly eye-opening experience and it's really made me think of, you know, you have the baby boomer generation that's coming up in age. It's the largest generation. And how are we going to support this generation from a healthcare side, but mm-hmm. also on the caregiving side? You know, you don't really have that society anymore where people live around the corner from, you know, grandma and grandpa. Yeah. Now people are out of state or they're even out of the country. So I think it's going to, to really have to shift what we think of in terms of long-term care and care in general. I mean, I, I'm, I spend every night in a nursing home. You know, I see they're short staff. They have a lot of patients. Um, families can't visit every day, you know, families are working, they have their own families. It's, yeah. it's really a lot. You know, I think this, you know, this country is really going to rely on sort of that invisible workforce to supplement, even if you have your loved one in a nursing home, you know, there's still things, like I said earlier, there's still things that you have to take care of. Yeah. The numbers are staggering. I mean, it's, it's over 11,000 people a day turn 65 and in the country. And that's, and, and so just at least we're, we're in Utah here, and the facilities that they're trying to get up, right, for the, whether it's long-term care or either even assisted living, I, they can't keep up, right? And then to your point, the staff, right? The staff, especially over the last two years, has been burned out. Mm-hmm. And so, so finding the resources to take care of these, this generation, is, it's, it's a big problem that we need to solve. Yeah, it really is. I, I, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about that and just thinking of, of what this care burden is going to look like you know, over the next decade. Yeah. Yeah. Scary stuff. Well, you, you do a great job of articulating your story. Again, I think it's something that everybody here needed to hear. And, and I appreciate that. We do have three getting to know you questions and they're kind of random and all over the place. So it's kind of off the cuff stuff. So the first one is you're given a time machine and to save humanity, 
you need to go back in time to a decade outside the decades you've lived. And you have to survive for that decade. So what decade are you going to go back to? That is such a great question. And I can't say I've ever been asked that question. <laughs> I've always felt for some reason I would have done really well in the 1920s. Okay. Granted, I'd have to live through the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. But I've just always felt like that was a really interesting time period, you know, in history and in society. Um, probably, you know, the fact that also my grandmother was in the 1920s. I feel like I have a good framework there. So I'm going to go with that. All right. Awesome. Okay. Question number two, what's your spirit animal and why? Well, for about 20 years of my life, I was an avid equestrian. So I would have to say I have a very strong connection with horses. They are, um, they're beautiful creatures. I think the bond between, you know, a human and a nonverbal animal is just amazing. But the fact that it's also the only um, interspecies Olympic sport, I think also makes it sort of fascinating. So I'm going to go with a horse. That's awesome. I did see on your Instagram, you've got lots of horse pictures. Yes. So that's, that, that's, that's great. <laughs> All right. Last one outside of family, who's been the most influential person in your life? Also a good one. You know, that one is so hard because I feel like at different points in my life, there have been so many people. Um, I had a fabulous mentor during my college days who is still an incredible friend and actually uh, was mentioned in the book tough because his brother-in-law was the one who sort of advised me about having the lymph nodes taken out. Mm. Um, and I'm always so grateful for that valuable piece of advice. Cause like I said, it kind of saved me from having a, a second surgery. Um, but I would, yeah, I would definitely say my college mentor has really paved a great path and sort of been along for this side of, of my journey as well, and uh, has really just been an inspirational and inspiring person to me at many different phases of my life. So I'm very grateful for him. That's awesome. Well, you did great. Again, just those <laughs> random off the cuff questions that are a little bit out there. Again, listening, go follow her living in style on the blog, follow the Instagram, follow everything, because it's, it's really awesome what you're doing out there. And again, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to share your story here with us. And and to be here on our, on our podcast. So Vanessa, seriously, thank you. Thank you for having me, Eric. It's been great. And I'm, I'm honored to share my story and thank you for everything that you guys are doing too, to help people navigate Medicare and just the uh, health insurance world in general. So thank you. Appreciate everything on your side too. Okay. Well, you have a good rest of your day. You too. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. Hey, as we wrap up this episode, we just wanted to let you know that we record these live. So sometimes we misspeak or say things that we didn't mean to. We also run each episode by some other outside experts just to make sure that we got all of our facts straight. So in the show description, you'll find a link to some more information around the topics that we discussed. So be sure to check that out. And if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear others like it, be sure to subscribe. Again, thanks for listening.